0: Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. We've talked quite a bit about the race for Toronto's next mayor on the show, but this is the first chance for us to hear directly from a candidate. Chloe Brown was on the ballot last time around, and she's at it again, trying to replace John Tory. Our audience members flagged her campaign as a point of interest. Between her third place finish in the last election, her policies on housing, and the grassroots nature of her campaign, we wanted to know more. She was gracious in her availability and perfectly candid in her responses clearly not your typical politician. Although we didn't get into the details of her campaign as much, Chloe had a lot to say about the systems at play in politics, her motivations, and what she would do differently. Good morning, Chloe. Thank you for joining us at Blueprints. Why don't you introduce yourself again, even though we just did that?
1: Uh, My name is Chloe Brown. I am a 32-year-old policy analyst living in the city of Toronto and yeah, I'm running for mayor because I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I've started at City Hall as an unpaid intern in 2014, and as we look to 2024, it's been 10 years since the housing crisis, 10 years since the unpaid intern crisis, and I want solutions now. So that's really who I am, and it really defines why I do this, because I love Toronto, there's a million places I could rather, I could be, but I choose to be here because of the value of being around the world in one city. This isn't your
0: first go at Toronto Mayor, is it? Right? Like, you talked about this being deja vu. We're not that far out from a really grueling campaign, which, you know, I'll be fair, we did a short special on our mayoral prospects. And we overlooked your campaign in our discussions and our audience made sure to check us on that. (laughs) One of the things that impressed them the most about your, yeah, no, they, they let us have it when we need to. Um, one of the things that impressed them about your campaign was the amount of votes you were able to secure with a modest budget, right? It's not easy for grassroots to raise funds. There's no judgment there, but what you were able to do with those funds, you came in third place. Um, are you building on that? Like, did that energize you? Were you hopeful with your performance, your
1: results? To be honest, yeah, it was really exciting to see how it turned out for a dollar amount. I think in the end, it came up to 20 cents per vote based on the entirety of the budget. So yeah, it's very unheard of in the world of political science and public administration to get such a big turnout. but. In the scale of my career, it's like I've always worked for nonprofits, schools. I've worked with marginalized people. You often get a small budget to make huge impact with. So that's why the message was directly to the working class because that's who I serve as a public administrator. I've helped people move from EI to Ontario Works to ODSP. I've helped them move through a variety of government systems in order for them to maintain a job maintain their education, and this is where I was able to really target the largest amount of users because the people that are being affected by the lack of local democracy isn't the executives, the senior managers, it's the workers. And we see this, I see this as a policy analyst, when you look at the wage discrepancy between the executive, who's the corporate strategist, and then the operator, who actually works the machine. And this imbalance really speaks to me from not just a political lens, but it speaks to me as a worker. I'm someone who plugs in every day at an eight hour hour a day job. And while I'm comfortable earning like that 66,000 on paper, it's like by the time my bills come out, my student loans, all these other things, it's like, am I really making 66,000? And that's really, the underlying fear that all of us universally are feeling right now. So speaking to universal feelings as opposed to political identity is what I do in my job, and that's what made me successful. So, yeah, I'm building off of it, but I'm also not in the way that, yeah, I'm still speaking to the working class. That hasn't changed and it shouldn't change because that is who's deeply affected by this lack of leadership.
0: We, we feel that. You, you talked about being sick of being sick of it. Right. There's a lot of folks in the city of Toronto just completely exasperated, not just by council, but this campaign already. A lot of stuff being thrown around that's really not relevant. A lot of fear mongering being used by your opponents. Um, What's it like wading into it? It seems feels like a different campaign this time around. Do you are you feeling that? Um, No, (laughs) I know that sounds strange, but this feels exactly like, did you ever stop campaigning then? No, and
1: that's, that's where people kind of underestimate my experience in local politics. I started with Pam McConnell and at the time in 2014, Pam McConnell was overseeing the Pan Am games, the Regent Park development, the Union Station revitalization, the Burkese Park revitalization with the dog fountain. So it's like I was in city council for months watching the current cast of candidates do their thing and that's why I'm not intimidated by them. I used to do research to provide recommendations to them about youth issues when I was a youth and I've deputed in front of them, I've organized workshops for them to talk to youth, I've put my blood, sweat and tears into youth equity during my 20s only to become an adult And this same cast of clowns only have consensus on advancing poverty. They've done nothing to reduce it. They've only advanced it, and that's why I can really be on this stage and not really be intimidated by their titles or anything that they do, because I've seen them work, and they have no work product to show for it. Like, respectfully, Josh Matlow's been at council since 2010. What is he going to do differently that he wasn't doing now. And this is where I question any of them because when the time for courage showed itself, when John Toy ran again for a third time, despite saying he would only run twice, all of them were very comfortable to maintain their path, which was to run for council, to continue at their job, whatever it was. And now that John is gone, all of a sudden they have courage. And that shows me that all of them were comfortable with the status quo <laughs> no matter what left or right side they claimed they were all very comfortable with john providing them a stage for their theatrics because that's exactly what happens at city council and yeah that's why i'm running because to be honest like is their job even real they have no performance <laughs> metrics <laughs> they run on the basis of a popularity contest and then they get into their job and they don't know the first thing about democratic governance, which is everyone needs to be served. Not just the people who lined your pocket during the during the campaign, it's even the people who do not like you. It's the people you're afraid of that you have to still make fair policy for. And if you don't have the stomach or the cholesterol for it, find a different job. Go to the private sector. And that's really what I'm calling them out for, because no one is holding them hostage to being a city councillor, to being mayor. Find a different job because it's really unfair to the public that you continue to lie to them and mislead them based on their fears. And that's what they've been doing for the last decade. Oh, the criminals of social housing. Oh, the youth, it's this, it's that. It's never their lack of leadership. It's always someone else's fault that the city is decaying. but they chose leadership roles. Make make it make sense.
0: (laughs) No, it makes no sense. We're just as frustrated with uh, what we've seen for generations. And I think you're certainly not alone. I see a lot of sentiment around that same frustration you described. And if you've had your shot, it's time to step out. You know, so for anybody, there's a few front runners there, quite a few that have had their time in the sun and done nothing terribly spectacular. So uh, you're certainly uh, strengthening that argument for folks. People really are looking for something different. And for quite a while, I would say that is your campaign. I want to ask you, though, about the entrance of Olivia Chow. So she hasn't been on city council, right? You can't perhaps say those same things. And my impression is that most progressives will recognize that name. How did that make you feel when she put her hat in the race a little late in the game? Was it a shock?
1: No. Did it make make you shift your campaign in any way? No, because the NDP is a part of the establishment. There's champagne liberals, champagne socialists, the right wing is just like, let's go back to the days of slavery and feudalism because that was tight and I just, they're on their own island and it's just like, I let them stay out there in the fantasy, but when it comes to progress and the left, it's like, as a racialized person, please define progress for me. Please define who the left is to you. because. The left, as it exists south of Bloor, is not the left that exists north of Eglinton. And growing up in a Jamaican immigrant household, we don't use the words left and right. You're socialist, you're capitalist, you are communist. There's a larger like, vocabulary to use when it comes to speaking about politics. So when the left's progressive showed up, it's just like, oh, cool, like. Being the left hand of capitalism is not the flex that you think it is. (laughs) You know what I mean? You're progressing what? You're all sitting at the same lunch table and progressing what? You know what I mean? And this is where, respectfully, my parents never spoke well about the late, the Chows, like Olivia Chow, Jack Layton. They see them as people who had professional jobs taking up social housing. That's how they're spoken about in my community. So it's like, left progress for who? Like, who are you representing except downtown? And this is where the left constantly loses the suburbs because it's like, you only speak to downtown urbanism. And when it comes to the suburbs, you run through our neighborhoods during campaign seasons. We never see you. So who is Olivia Chow to me? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like respectfully, who is Olivia Chow to me as a kid who grew up in Rexdale in public housing that never saw the NDP, you know what I mean? They only come around during election season and this is why Doug Ford was able to sweep the suburbs because they're champagne socialist. Their politics, <laughs> let's be honest, like their politics haven't advanced labor laws. They're still doing these piecemeal negotiations and this is why teachers and nurses and ECE workers are not getting fair wages because they're still just the left hand of capitalism. And this is where I have to be honest, I'm politically agnostic. I hold no membership to any political party because they're all equally disappointing. If you want my vote, fight for it.
0: So partisan wise, you don't belong to a party, but you did mention some labels that are
1: gonna perk our ears up. Would you consider yourself a socialist? No, not really. Like I read socialist text, I read communist text, I read all the all the political ideology, but to be honest, like my identity is not is politicized. I personally am not a political person. I am someone who is a systems thinker. I'm a troubleshooter. I look at problems. I don't care what side of the spectrum they come to me from. I look at people's values because the truth is there are liberals who have very unethical policies because they don't talk to people. So it's like I don't hinge myself to any political ideology. I'm just People, person and maybe that is rooted in socialism but it's like the reality of my history is not the same as people that grew up like being Irish in North America or being English in North America and yeah it's it's complex because it's like I'm a little liberal about some things I'm socialist about some things I can be conservative about capital punishment especially when it's a especially heinous crime, like law and order says. And that's the thing, it's just my political beliefs are on a case-by-case basis. And when it comes to dealing with people, you have no idea why they adopt certain political identities. So, to stop myself from participating in prejudice, I don't identify as anything. I just support the most vulnerable person in the room because that's the most ethical and right thing to do. and. That's always how I've been treated, where it's like when I felt small, it was someone stepping out of themselves to welcome me. That was the right thing to do. And I've never asked someone like, oh, what are your political beliefs and why are you doing this? No, they just, kindness is free. And I respect people who show kindness, not just being nice because nice is gift wrapping. Like, do you sacrifice your time? Do you teach people? I look at your actions because labels are superfluous. You know what I mean? Like I could There's a lot of nice people that are narcissist, and that's the problem with politics. <laughs> a lot of us get wrapped up in like, "Oh, he dresses nice. He talks nice. His hair's nice." And then it's like, "Okay, like do you know the movie American Psycho? <laughs> Christian Bale showed how nice people can hide very violent thoughts, and that's why it's like I push people to not just be a political label to justify to me why you choose to identify with this, because the truth is not a lot of people have political identities. It's the politicians that give them to people.
2: One thing that um you said that resonated with me about how you know these parties they don't show up in in the suburbs, outside of electoral seasons, right? And that's something like, that, you know we talk a lot about, which is one of the problems with these partisan spaces is. You know the focus on on elections, um, and obviously, like you're you you've chosen to like participate in in electoral politics, and and we know how flawed the municipal elections are, even though they they claim to be these these nonpartisan spaces. We know that you know the big parties they they have their favorites, and that it is a bit of a rigged game in that sense because it's it's not equal footing, and we know about how much control developer money has and everything and and so I guess I want to ask you about like what should be happening outside of those campaigns you know what what is the work that needs to to happen you know after July when I I forget the day of the election July something June 20 see not even July uh June June 26th (laughs) You know, after June twenty sixth, you know, something some we'll have a new mayor and a lot of the problems will still be there and with all likelihood we won't get the change that we need and there'll be a lot of fighting. So I just like in from your perspective, what is it that we need to do after that?
1: So I think one of the big things that we as a collective society are going through is the end of the project. And it's like, yeah, we are the end of like the consumerism project, the mass production project. And a lot of us need to realize what's next is participatory government, which means like you're going to have to find time to meet up with your neighbors and figure out how your tax dollars can fix your neighborhood. This is called participatory budgeting. It happens in Brazil, parts of America, and Toronto Community Housing actually did this for a long number of years until the executive board took that power away from them and it's essentially like figuring out like if we have this much rent what can we do to fix the foyer what can we do to have a better chain of contractors making doing maintenance on the building like we have to become more active shareholders in our own lives and I think this is where the pandemic made us realize it's like, how much control do you actually have over your time in your life? If you're commuting for two hours to get to a job that's eight hours, and then you have to commute for another two, like 12 hours of your day is gone. And it also made people realize that you can't just be a passive family member because like during the pandemic, my stepfather passed and just trying to step into his shoes was one of the most like emotionally draining things that i experienced because it's like i didn't realize how many people depended on my father for just like emotional support my stepdad was a person that calls you every week he looked after my niece and nephew while all of us his kids worked you know what i mean and when he died i had to step in and provide childcare for my sister who has two kids and much as and as much as auntie loves them auntie is not built for early childhood education so this is where it's like we need to agree that we have to pay early childhood education workers a fair wage. No more like discussion, no more minimum wage conversation. They need a living wage because not everyone is meant to take care and educate children as much as we love them. There are just people that are better at it and they're more like involved in it. And then it's also like we have to hold the government accountable because it's like they're your accountant. They are your planner they're your architect they have a very specific role and we should be taking one day out of the week to call them just what are you up to i sent in my taxes what did you do with it send me an invoice we have to become their co-workers instead of giving them free reign over our checkbook like we are not the bank of mom and dad we are your co-worker if you don't show up for work there will be consequences and this is where the active like shareholder has to come out because it's like, I won't be the person to transition us from capitalism, but these next three years will be crucial in figuring out like the future ahead. Because now that we've been exposed to remote work, now that we've seen how the government can provide universal access to like financial support, we cannot go back. And this is the this is the rock and the hard place where at the most, lowest level of democracy which is our streets if we can't control them we have no hopes of changing the federal government's mind so it's like we really have to get involved in the local government your local neighborhood council you need to become more involved with your neighbors because this is why these politicians use the mayors race as a as a springboard instead of a platform or a dinner table to bring more people around and i will say Look at the race between Anthony Perusa and Giorgio Mammoliti. They're only sticking in that area because they're trying to be the person to replace Judy Sagro, who is the Liberal MP of that spot right now. A lot of these candidates are using the mayor's race to, like, feel out their chances for the Liberal race on December 2nd. They're not serious about being a part of the city. They're doing this as a corporate ladder climb and we we as their neighbors, we as the workers who serve them food need to call them out regularly. Like, I hate to say this, but Doug Ford shouldn't be able to eat comfortably in the province of Ontario until he funds education, healthcare, care, etc. Because the truth is Doug works for me. I don't care if the city of Toronto is a creature of the province, Doug Ford collects a paycheck from my hard work. And as a worker, he does not get to leave his home until he fixes things because he chose this role. He could have ruined his father's business at Deco Labels, but he chose to come into an arena where I'm paying good money. And this is where we like, you need to, you need to become a little bit of a loan shark with these guys because it's like the developers are loan sharks with them and they gave away the green belt. How much more should 6 million people be activated, and mobilized against, what, a hundred people at Queen's Park? Who are they to us? You work for me despite me earning my little salary. You take taxes that then allow you to live this lavish lifestyle and have no performance metrics? No. So this is where, like, even if I don't win, you guys have to become little Chloe's, little nuisances, and actually, like... Demand better for yourself because asking your oppressor or your abuser to treat you better is insanity. And that's exactly the collective fever dream that we're stuck in where it's like, oh, if we ask Doug and like appeal to his humanity, he won't treat us badly. He cut counsel. He's selling the green belt. Like how much more are you going to beg this man to treat you nicely? Go to the feds. There's always a higher authority. There's always a bigger fish. Go to that, wrap dug it up in lawsuits until the next election because who is Douglas Ford to six mil, like to us? Who is he? <laughs>
0: you know? Let me ask you about that, exactly what you're talking about there, but in your role as mayor, right? You have to deal with these folks. Not only do you have to go to the feds, the, the city of Toronto is a complete creature of the province, beholden to them, to a very uh, big degree. We've heard what you think about Doug Ford. The sentiments are shared here, Um, obviously. You know, we talk about disruption. But as mayor, how would you leverage that relationship? And, you know, how should the Toronto mayor be using that relationship that they have to make sure Toronto gets what they deserve, the funding that they deserve and, and whatnot? What would that kind of... What is an ideal relationship for you there? Because right now they are going hat in hand and asking as kindly as possible and getting nothing in return, right? So how do you step that
1: up a little bit? You act like an actual business instead of a beggar. And that is essentially what these politicians have been doing. They just go begging with no plan. Just give me money because I'm Toronto. No, Uh, you know what I mean? I've never seen such a pathetic group come to a bank with no plan and just like give me money because vibes. You know, and this is where as a policy analyst, I'm aware of administrative laws. I'm aware of what policy mechanisms are available to me and I know how to use them. These other candidates don't because all they're used to is just begging each other for money. Like rich people beg each other for money at fundraisers. They don't work. And this is where I have plans to essentially go to the feds and go above Doug, because even Doug has to ask the feds for money. And we saw with the healthcare transfers that the feds are willing to claw them back when the province does not fulfill the desired outcomes of the federal government. So this is where I'm using my knowledge of policy to say like, hey, as the country's largest city, if I can build programs and services to help the federal government reach its outcomes, why do you need to fund Doug when you can fund me? And this happens because there are grants and loans that municipalities can apply for. But you don't have a bunch of grant writers, so how are you surprised that they're not writing to the feds to get this money or they don't have plans? Like they. It's really frustrating, but it's like, yeah, what you see these politicians doing with the city's broke, the city's broke, it's not broke. The city has reserves that are tied up in projects like the Gardener. They have money that's reserved for policing. It's really about the allocation and the priorities of council that's making us appear broke but if you're a policy analyst, you know the city has money and this is why other levels of government are not giving it to the city of Toronto because you can't continue to cry poor and have billions in reserves in deferred revenue and you your plans are not in line with the country's priorities. And this is where I challenge other people to realize, like, where do you think the Ontario and the Canadian money comes from? It's still our money. <laughs> You know, And if other levels of government don't wanna give it to the local council, it's because they've been irresponsible with it. So this is why my platform's so thick, because those are all the plans that I'm taking to the feds. Each and every one of them fulfills one of the federal government's missions, whether it's climate change, agricultural technology, like affordable housing, all of these programs are aligned to a federal ministry, the Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation. And this is where having a plan, (laughs) having a plan is one of like the easiest things for me to do because it's like, I'm an analyst. I go through government reports all the time. I know what the feds are looking for. I know what it takes to deliver upon these things. And I actually have the grit to deliver, not city council because all they do is refer things back to staff. They don't do research. They're not active counselors. They're very passive actors. So it's really up to me to raise the bar, not just for my fellow counselors, but for like the MPs and the MPPs, because they also live here too. And this is where my approach is, I don't want to say it's bullying, but it's like raise the bar for all of them. There's all levels of government living in this city, playing theater, and they're not using the le- the levers of policy to advance democracy. It's really up to us to stop outsourcing our civic responsibility to political leaders. We have to take responsibility for all these rights that we demand that we have. Like, okay, housing is a human right, great. What is your, what responsibility have you taken for making sure your neighbor has access to housing? You know what I mean? And this is where, it, it, Like, I have to say it's hard for me, but I have to call out people who go camping because it's like, you go camping in a rural man's backyard and it's fine, but there are homeless people in this city and you want to evict them from the park for camping? The same thing that you're doing in Algonquin or one of the national parks? Like, let's be real. We wouldn't have encampments if homeowners associations and residents associations weren't biased against apartments and who comes from apartments, which is people like me. And this is where we really need to confront one another about with all these rights that you claim, what responsibility have you taken on to protect these rights? Because if you continue to leave it up to twenty-five people to defend the rights of millions, you're gonna you're not gonna get it. You're not gonna get what you want. You know what I mean? Because These 25 people keep asking Tom, Dick, and Harry what's wrong. If you keep asking Tom, Dick, and Harry what the problem is, you'll get Tom, Dick, and Harry solutions each and every time. And that's where you see this overrepresentation of executive opinions in working class programs. The working class does not inform policy. And it's because, yes, we're working two or three jobs, but then we're also the ones arguing about oh, the prices are going up because minimum wage is going up. No, 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 darling. The price is going up because the executives want greater share of the profits. How can you, and this is where like I get frustrated with even the left because it's like we are arguing about whether or not a man should earn $16 an hour knowing that that's not feasible for surviving. No one wants to talk about the overpayment of executives or the fact that the, The economy has stalled because executive leadership, all they do is eat up small companies. There's no competitive economy here. There's three guys in a trench coat for everything. I've got to say, I I
0: disagree with that sentiment on the left. I mean, we are constantly talking about the overpayment of CEOs and the inflation, and unfortunately, they've coined the term greedflation. But I think, um, Santiago, you were looking to ask a question there.
2: Well, I I guess what I that actually has to do with, I guess, what you just, the comments you just made, Chloe, um, what are we doing about it, right? And I guess I want to ask is, where is that disconnect coming from? Because, you know, one thing that I talk a lot about is the fact that um, all of our essential uh, goods and services um, are in shambles right now, like every single thing that people need is in horrible conditions. And so, then you look at, at at politics, and and you look at the fact that you know in in France they're in the they've been in the streets for months now. I don't even know how long it's been over pensions getting raised two years, but here there's a complete inaction as as this has happened. You know, Jessa has the Ford tracker where she's been you know keeping track of every single horrible thing that Ford has done because it is impossible to keep track of it all because uh, it's just so overwhelming, and so yeah we know that we need we need to be doing stuff. Why is that not happening and how can we get to the point where people are actually holding um, these leaders accountable and why like and and then I guess like is that going to come from from electoral? is that going to come on the streets and how do we even make that happen on the streets like we know we need it, but how do we get it
1: so this is where like I've been working with tenants associations to get them ready to register as nonprofits so that they can hold land as community land trust groups. And these actions are happening in small pockets. If you look at Parkdale, they pushed gord perks to get the money to secure 85 like uh, to secure properties. They have up to 85 now and this is where we really need to come out of our shell for the right occasions because I remember being a kid in 2012 and The thing was like we're gonna find Kony who was like this African warlord and it started on Twitter and I'm just like how do we have the audacity to be looking at other people's countries talking about we're gonna find this person meanwhile like the biggest uh, like offender is your counselor so it's like we really have to think about like how do you use this phone how are you using this phone to organize your friends to bring down the cost of housing Bring down the cost of groceries, Wi Fi, because these things are possible. It's really about us coming together, and instead of like using that money to go to that restaurant, we use it to come together and agitate. And this is where, like, I'm not, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, yes, I'm a little bit of a shit disturber, and I like to push people to reimagine their possibilities. So it's like, yeah, for $200 and 25 signatures, I got on a platform and I, I shook an old man who was the symbol of the status quo. And it wasn't because like I wanted to win, it's because it was larger than that. John Tory, to me, was a symbol of the old guard in every boardroom across Toronto. And someone had to ask him, like, what are you doing with my money, with all this management experience, all these friends you have, like, prove to me that you are actually doing your job? Because I was I was really at my wit's end. I was looking at leaving the country, applying for visas. And it's like, why? Because. I can't afford housing in the country that I'm born in. Like I refuse to be run out by downtown Abbey. So it's like, this is the way that I fight it. And I would encourage more people to not think of fighting as a bad thing or a violent thing, but it's like, you're right. You have to fight for your right to party. Like the Beastie Boys say, and that's really where I try to make people realize like you have a lot more power than you think. Look at how Gen Z destroys brands regularly cancel culture if you get enough people together and you can generate enough like viral activity that's a beacon and it's more important to send up a beacon than it is to win quote unquote because the beacon will at least let people know that hey i'm lost and i'm looking to be found and that's where the vulnerability part of social media can really work in our favor where it's like more of us need to be honest about the fact that like yeah i make x amount of money and i'm still like afraid that i have to go to the food bank i make x amount of dollars but by the time i pay my rent and i pay for medication for my disabled child i have to go to the food bank you know what i mean like we don't know how deeply poverty runs in our communities because a lot of us are using social media to flex and to be like look what i have look how wonderful my life is it's like show me tears (laughs) you know what i mean show me the tears that i know you have because it's like i'm me as a policy analyst i have to get a lot of my information now from social media news stories because people don't answer surveys like they used to So it's like I'm hearing one thing from the public, but then my reports say differently and this is why I have to run because it's like the information is no longer making sense to me because I have friends that are going through the training programs that are doing all the right things and the outcomes are not amounting to what has been promised to them. And I find that like the most frustrating thing about being an advocate for marginalized people because you... It builds up nihilism. When people don't see all their hard work amounting to something, it builds up hopelessness, it builds up detachment inside of them, and this is the mental health crisis that we're seeing right now. People have put their hopes and dreams in this city and have been rewarded nothing. They've been rewarded with evictions. They've been rewarded with food insecurity, and this is where we really need to come together and ask, like, why doesn't my building's lobby grow food? There's vertical and like hydroponic gardens. Don't start. Don't
0: start, Santiago. I know. I can see it. He's going to start talking about vertical greenhouses. Chloe.
1: We have the technology now. <laughs> we have the technology. We see these empty lots all around our communities, empty storefronts. You mean to tell me we can't challenge laws? You know uh, what I mean? Santiago is, is comes- there
0: for that. Chloe he is planning it already he will call you for sure I'm curious though you've got a lot of heat for John Tory rightfully so no one's judging Chloe um and some of these counselors running against you have you got to debate them like was there I'm sorry I don't live in Toronto so was there a debate
1: last time like no there were two debates with John Tory last time I participated in nine in total with other candidates so it's like, yeah, by the time I got to meet John, it was like, I've done six of these. So I can just just roll out this the seventh one. and honestly, I was at city I was an intern in 2014 when John first got in. I've met John Tory multiple times. I was in a meeting with John Tory when Black Lives Matters took over the police station. And this is actually when I decided I wouldn't do politics because he brought us into this meeting at 8am and was like, how do I deal with these people? And I'm like, John, do you know I'm one of those people? <laughs> like, you really called me into this meeting at as like a six year old man and you've been around like these people all your life and you still don't know what to do. Like, did you get to say that? And that's to the thing? No? Like, like, that was my question. Like, have you
0: got to say to these people, like, what are you doing with my money? Like you, you know, you're the wonkiest of all the, ca- the, the candidates. And that is a policy wonk, right? That's not a, um, they forced me to become a wonk. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like,
1: that's what people but what a great tool in a
0: debate, right? Like if, if, You just need to be able to stand next to these folks and actually talk about some of these policies, because that's where you'd be real fire. Not that you're not fire on your own, but I would love to see that because, you know, just like your approach and and how you feel about them. I mean, I tune in for that with popcorn and everything.
1: Well, this is why the polls are leaving me out, because a lot of these debates rely on polling data. If you leave my name out of it, of course, I'm not gonna show up on the polls as like a top five candidate to invite to debates because yeah, I will surgically eviscerate <laughs> each and every one of them because I've I've deputed to each and every one of them. I've deputed to Mark Saunders, Josh Matlow, Anna Bailoud, like name a person on that stage and I've, I can tell you a relationship that I've had with this person through the youth equity strategy, the Toronto Strong Neighborhood strategy, anti-poverty reduction, I was at City Hall from 2014 to 2016, and it was like those two years made me realize I never wanted to work directly with politicians as an EA, a constituent assistant, because like they're not, they, I'm not saying all of them, but it's really hard for me to do that frontline work with no solutions. I don't like telling people like, oh, I'm so sorry, like I can't do anything. Knowing that I could do something, you know, and that's why I'm running because it's like I am no one's secretary anymore. Like, I'm either going to give you solutions straight up or not give you solutions at all because I'm tired of being complicit of bad government. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I know what you as mean. I'm a policy analyst. It's, yeah, we've heard from you a lot of
0: um, LAs and constituent uh, assistants. It's It's a tough slog, especially for someone who has a vision of something better, right? Quite often people go into those real pie-eyed and end up very jaded. Um, So I don't blame you for not wanting to play that role (laughs) anymore. And I guess you've kind of already answered it. But, you know, in a discussion that we had on our Discord, at at one point I said, not everybody runs to win, right? Like, not everybody... uh, like, most people have a realistic expectation of money and politics and, and outcomes, and, but that doesn't deter everyone, right? Not everyone's a career politician. And quite a, a few times in this interview, you said, like, and that's when I realized I'd never do politics. And that's when I realized, you know, you seem quite jaded about politics, and so are we, right? Like, it's, it's totally justified. But you're still running, for a really big in a really big race with a huge profile taking a lot of time out of your life um
1: are you running to win I'm running to win and also advance democracy because yeah it's people say it's the worst system but like have you tried authoritarian governments <laughs> you know what I mean and I'd rather fight for democracy than win in the traditional sense but it's like yes I'm running to win because God knows like I cannot continue in the way that things are. But it's more important for me to raise the bar of political discourse because I cannot continue with this lazy conversation of left, left wing, right wing. It's the same bird. Like please stop trying to like make me believe it's a different bird. We need to actually advance democracy because we have seen how democracy is eroding. And what is on the other side of democracy? just look south of the border. I do not have the cholesterol for American style politics. And I don't believe a lot of us have that cholesterol for it because the truth is the only way that our society works is this agreement that democracy is better than the alternative. And that's what makes all these culturally diverse people live in this place because the truth is Toronto is one of those few places where you'll meet people from warring countries who do not care about the war in their country. They're just happy to be here and have the opportunity to live amongst each other. And I say this like having friends from India, Pakistan, like Palestine, Israel, like we can all sit together and talk about how messed up our countries are and still be like, I want to advance democracy here so that when people are ready to come here, they are accepted. And that to me is worth, that is like the hill that I am willing to die on to to not be morbid. But it's like, yeah, that's why I stay in Toronto because it's like, this is one of the few democracies that works in the entire world. And to me, that's sacred because democracy has been a project that has been changed and modified over like 200 years. And here I am. Still holding on to it, like being able to protect it. And I want to be able to pass that on to my niece and nephew because under democracy, no one is above the law. Under democracy, there are no monarchies. Under democracy, everyone is granted dignity, equality, and freedom. And for me, it's like that's bigger than the mayor's office, it's bigger than Justin Trudeau or Doug Ford. Like for democracy to work, all of us have to once again feel that we are an active city builder, an active policymaker, because that is what has advanced my right to get education. And I say that in the context of the civil rights movement where it's like, I grew up with images of little girls walking to school across seas of hateful people. And if they didn't do that because they believed I had a fair like I deserve fair access to education, what like, I couldn't be here having this conversation. So it's like, this is my sacred duty. And it, it's, it's not about title for me because the mayor's office is just, it's just a title and office. If me, you and Santiago do not punch in for our jobs, what is there to rule over? What money is there to debate about? it really needs us to get back into the driver's seat of our own destiny as opposed to outsourcing it to the corporation, outsourcing it to your local representative. We have to take control of ourselves, what happens in our neighborhoods, and actually become active planners of the future because like when you you were speaking, I was speaking to someone about AI today and it's like AI is not the threat that you think it is it's the people that are going to use ai to replace humans without thinking about it as a tool like a screwdriver in a toolkit cuz that's all ai should be seen as it's a it's a sonic screwdriver if you're into doctor who but um it's just a tool in the toolkit and when people decide to use technology to replace humanity that's when you start having trouble because you can't replace creativity with like a bunch of generated AI images because the AI needed photos from human beings in order to build its intelligence. And this is where, yeah, four day work weeks, remote work, like all that's really important because we need time back to be active, like active at our jobs of being family members, active at our jobs of being neighbors, like we need that time back. And the technology is here to actually give us this time. So Yes, this is where I say people need to go to their unions, their pension funds and ask them, why aren't we building housing to bring down my cost of rent? Why aren't we pushing the government to rezone this specific area so we can have that vertical garden and those hydroponic gardens in my building? When it comes to the healthcare unions, why are we not building workforce housing with residential housing so healthcare workers can be doing more mobile and accessible forms of healthcare and social services? these things are in our control it's just really about us confronting leadership about why aren't my assets working for me because it's not just enough to pay my like I'm a part of OPSU it's not just enough for me to just give OPSU my dues for legal representation the cost of living has gone up and it should be the union's like responsibility to figure out how can we make Our money work for our workers outside of legal representation. It's providing housing, it's providing food, it's also like, and I say this, but when we think about the internet in the subway, we own the cables and we keep outsourcing the maintenance of the fiber optic network to Rogers to BAI when we could be, we could be owning our own broadband network, we could be we could be creating more independent internet service providers to bring down another cost of a good and service. So it's really about municipal stewardship, municipal ownership of like lands, data, and infrastructure, and really just demanding a fair seat at the table with a plate of food because just having a seat at the table is not enough now. If you're just staring at an empty plate, like are you really a guest here or are you just an observer of a feast? So, yeah, that's where I hope that kind of touches on everything. But it's like we just need to be shareholders the way that like you're a shareholder of pot stock or, you know, a shoe company. So, yeah, hope that answers it.
0: And then some. <laughs> yeah. Santiago, did you have any questions as we kind of get? It? I mean, I do, but.
2: You've uh, been quiet. You know, I'll leave it to you because I don't know how to phrase all of the questions that I have right now.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. I'm going to get back to your platform a little bit, and um, at at one point you talked about you know the money being there, and no doubt the city of Toronto has a ginormous budget. We just did an episode on how uh, police funding and and Doug Ford's new police pipeline, but in that we discovered that the city of Toronto spends $33 million a day on policing. And I I read through your platform, you don't really definitively say one way or another, but you do talk about investments that would be needed to better interact with the community, right? As replacing them as crisis responders and whatnot. Uh, Will you work to defund the police so that the funding is there for
1: all of these other projects that we're talking about. So that's the Public Health and Safety Commission that I'm looking at. So when you look at the organizational of the structure of the city, there are agencies, boards, corporations, and then there's divisions that work within the city to deliver programs. The agencies, boards and committees, corporations are run by an executive council that's independent of city council. And that's why I'm creating these commissions to get rid of those executive boards and just reset revenues based on the demands put on those commissions. And this is where, yes, it sounds like I'm defunding the police, but I would then reframe the question as to why it takes $1.3 billion to protect 3 million people. Like, is that really an efficient use of our dollars? If, and this is where like $1.3 billion would get you a security guard. It's for every person. So it's like, instead of looking at policing from like law enforcement strictly, it's like, we do have to acknowledge that there's a public safety angle around policing that we need to fully separate out of policing. And this is where, yes, I'm taking money out of the militarization, the militarized form of policing to fund crisis workers because I believe it's up to 85% of calls received by the police are not emergency calls. They're like social calls, mental health calls. They're non-emergency calls from seniors. So we really need to separate that and just give the money to the public safety and health care portion of it. So yes, I'm planning to start the reduction up to like 200 million to get crisis workers their own department, where they can just strictly look at how can we How can we evolve public safety and get more communities involved in that? Because the truth is, when I was growing up, I knew people that were schizophrenic. I knew that when they were having an episode by their behavior and I knew who to call when that was happening. And it's usually the parent of that person. That split second with understanding if someone's going through a mental health crisis versus seeing something as an escalating violent incident can save someone's life. And this is where I want to put money in public health to provide education to communities, to work with the mobile crisis workers to deliver these outcomes. So I can't say off the top of my head how this money will be divided, but I would like to put 200 million directly into mobile crisis workers. So that would reduce the policing budget to 1.1 and then just keep going from there. Because the truth is, all I want police to do is deal with like investigative and tactical operations, which is like the car thefts. It's the it's like the gang violence. and even then it's just like I'm trying to bring the courts and policing services closer together because there's diversion opportunities. There's restorative justice opportunities. There's peacemaking opportunities that we could use to help divert youth out of the jail system but the systems need to be connected. Because one of the the things that people don't realize is that the City of Toronto funds court services. If the court services were connected to public health, it would be easier to refer people into healthcare programs when they needed them. It would be easier to coordinate with community groups to make sure that if someone is released back into the public, they're regularly checking into these sites to get the care that, that they need. However, these things don't happen because everything is separated. So it's like this is where I'm bringing the police into this commission to slowly pull out of their budget to fund the public safety aspects of municipal services as opposed to law enforcement, if that makes sense. Feel free to question me on it.
0: No, it makes sense. And the reason I asked is just because you do use the word investment along with policing in your platform. So I wanted to give you the the ability to clarify because one... Personally, I don't like to see those two words put together, um, particularly after seeing what Toronto spends on policing. You know, it's more than the public health, transportation, child care and libraries combined. And I, you know, for me, if I lived in the city of Toronto, that would be a huge point for me as a voter, not just because it's it's an issue that is important to me, but it also sends a message of the kind of political strength and... Bravery at this point in today's conditions, because if you look at the Toronto Mail race, um, the people that are getting the most amplification, unfortunately, are the ones that are driving home this law and order rhetoric and providing more police as the only solution. So it's important that there's a candidate out there that um, provides an alternative. Another one of your policies... Sorry, I know, I'm sure you have a lot to say on it, but we just don't have much more time left, and I definitely want to ask you about your housing-first approach. So, um, you know, without getting into too much detail, even though I know some audience members would appreciate that, but what does that mean, taking a housing-first approach? What does it mean in tangible policies at Toronto Council?
1: So... When I think of Housing First, I think of Khalil Sevright, where it's like he created those pods so that people would have privacy, a sense of dignity, even if they were in a shelter situation. And this is where the shelter system dramatically needs to be redesigned to give people a sense of dignity, equality, and freedom, despite the fact that they're in an emergency situation or they're fleeing violence. And this is where the Housing First mission is not only just redesign shelters but it's also make better emergency shelters across the city because the truth is the shelter system is full because it's not necessarily safe for people that are homeless so we need to have better housing options such as like sleeping pods micro homes and have them in areas that are staffed with social workers healthcare workers and a variety of people that can help them transition i'm To be honest, I have friends that are currently in relationships because there's not enough housing. If there was a short-term or mid-term housing solution that they could be using to save their money so that they can transition back into into independent life, that would be ideal. And this is where I'm trying to invest in more purpose-built apartment rentals through the community land trust. Because the truth is, tenants associations need to start investing in housing for more neighbors and we need to prevent homelessness from demo, demolitions, amateur, amateur evictions, and a variety of things, but that won't happen immediately. So how do we then transform existing spaces? So it's like, I'm thinking abandoned buildings. You can start refurbishing them for these mid, midterm and short-term solutions. It's really about how we approach modular housing And also just modular design, because we live in a time where you can fold walls and create more spaces like modular design is a very it's a very mobile and agile form of changing rooms to accommodate trauma informed design for creating privacy, etc. So it's my plan is really just getting more midterm housing solutions, purpose-built rental, and also just getting more communities involved in being nonprofit developers, because the problem that we have with the housing crisis is a lack of affordable land. We need to take over more lands that haven't been paying their property taxes. The City of Toronto just released a list of, like, 25 properties that have taxes up to, like, over $500,000 in arrears. Commercial properties? Those properties could be private properties, Yes that haven't been paying their property taxes and the city gives them grace to like run up their bills up to like half a million dollars, we could be transforming these lands into forms of housing. We could be building on top of transit stations. We could be building in a lot more places if we were focused on building purpose-built rentals because that's the missing middle right now. It's not condos or like, you know, those cute multiplexes. It's the fact that there's not enough apartments built for long-term tenancies. And until we can get those built, I still need to figure out like, how do I help people that are sleeping on the TTC, in the parks, in the hospitals, people that are revolving in and out of jail because that's a form of stabilized shelter because there's no apartments. So yeah, it's a multi-pronged plan, but it has to start with helping the disabled because that's who's making up the majority of the homeless population right now and if we can't build the shelters to be trauma-informed disability inclusive to accommodate them now how are we gonna make sure that they stay in the apartments that we build later so yeah it's a ground-up housing looking at not just like the single family home but looking at something as small as a sleeping pod that can be closed to give someone dignity looking at a micro home to then move them out of the shelter and then from the micro home to the apartment. So yeah, it's it's a lot, but I want more of us to be involved in it because I'd rather have my taxes building apartments for people with disabilities because I might become disabled one day. Like, you know yeah, what I mean? So it's really about, yeah, it's really about us building nonprofit housing for each other, ourselves and getting involved. And it goes back to the active stakeholder role because Parkdale has land trusts. They have eighty-five properties. It can be done, but will you or will you not participate? I
2: know they had eighty-five. That's news to me. I know about the Parkdale Community Land Trust. I used to live. It's in-
1: eighty-five units, I believe, in total. But they're buying up these properties with help from the Multi-Unit Residential Acquisition Fund at the city level, and the Housing Accelerator Fund that's available at the federal government level. And it's really the tenants pushing it and then pushing gourd perks. So the information's out there on the internet. Will you look for it? Will you go and push your counselor like he's your H and R block accountant that owes you money?
2: <laughs> you know? So I mean that that right there, like that to me is a, a very good example of something that we need a lot more of. I think one of the problems that we see is, you know, Parkdale has their community land trust. Kensington Market has it uh, has a very similar thing as well. These are communities that are are di- they're kind of unique as far as Toronto goes. Not all communities are as organized, not all it, it, not it's not the same everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I guess like what do you do outside of those communities? How do you how do you start those kinds of projects how do we make that happen what can we do um
0: that's like a whole new episode Santiago huh, yeah that is, it,
2: is a put, yeah I guess that's, that's just that's just what I think Chloe, right
0: man.
2: yeah well I just
1: it's not that's what that what It's right? like Parkdale, yeah. Parkdale answers your emails ask them ask them like can we meet up can you host something for my community and this is where I don't know why Torontonians are so afraid of each other like if you ask me something, I will send you, like, a whole two-page summary. Like, I'm about that life. You, we live in a city with some of the most academically driven people in the Western world. Nerd it up with them. Take them out for coffee. Like, we love to speak about our habits. <laughs> I guess, really... So, w- w- sorry, go ahead. W- what
2: I didn't mention was kind of maybe, like, the assumption behind my question, which was kind of this, this disconnect... That we're seeing where, you know, like you mentioned like earlier, you know, like talking to our friends, talking to people. And and that's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how that that's something that people really don't have. You know, I've I've gone around Toronto. I've done my fair share of organizing. And the problem is just how disconnected people are. And and I know like none of I don't have I don't have the answers and I don't expect like any one person to, to have all the answers. But I just. I guess that that's where that was coming from was just how do we replicate these things? Because I I, I don't I don't know how to do it uh, in places that are so disconnected. And I guess that's one of the good things about being able to, like, have these campaigns and running for mayors is like showing people that highlighting those those things that are that need to be highlighting, highlighting those victories, highlighting what actually works and yeah no, that's just where I was coming from there. I don't really have a question, I guess to end that off, but that's well, just what's on my mind this
1: time round this time around, I'm using like my daytime to have these policy chats followed by concerts in the evening because I want people to realize like the things that we're talking about they trickle down into this, like your ability to party, your ability to go out and actually enjoy yourself after having a tough conversation and yeah, this is where I'm really going a little different because it's like I'm hosting events during Pride Week to talk about queer spaces, followed by parties in the evening because queer spaces are disappearing. And I really want t- to drive it home to people that, like, this is what you're fighting for the ability to go out on these nights safely, the ability to enjoy yourself. These are all political, you know what I mean? And um, our conversation during pride week is like a village everywhere because church and young shouldn't be the only place where queer people should feel safe it should be the entire city why isn't it like that and this is where i want people to have these challenging conversations but also follow it up with like go out you know like take the ease off and remind yourself like, this is what you're fighting for, the right to be with your friends, the right to go out and be safe. And that's where we demystify politics because it's really not just a bunch of old white philosophers that talked about the way the world should be. It's you being alive right now, in spite of all the odds that were thrown your way, in spite of all the circumstances that your family were given in prior decades, you know what I mean? you are walking, living, breathing politics. Own what is yours. (laughs) And that goes back to like my campaign where it's like reclaim Toronto, own what is yours because a lot of people do not feel like they own their own lives right now. What would it mean for you to feel ownership over your life? And these are philosophical questions that I try to introduce into like, you know, your basic conversation about, did you see that HBO show? Because the truth is, Art is there to encourage you to take stock of like, your own reality. And we're exposed to art all the time. Do we ask each other our feelings about it? No, because no one wants to be stupid or look a certain way, but like risk it. You know, risk being vulnerable, risk being honest, because the truth is there's a bunch of idiots out here being honest about the worst thoughts. Like <laughs> Tucker Carlson was just getting paid to think. Well, like, I thought she meant Brad Bradford. <laughs> <laughs> no. I will I will leave Bradley squared out of this for today. <laughs> um, this is where um, I really challenge people to be honest with one another because I can't help you if you're not honest that you're suffering. You know what I mean? And this is where we as the working class have to unlearn a lot of things because we really internalize the fact that we don't wanna be seen as victims. And we internalize these ideas of like, oh, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there when we've never seen anything like that living in Canada. I've never seen a dog-eat-dog thing. Because why? We take care of our dogs. So we really have to challenge our own perceived narratives of where we stand in, like, the political reality. Like, are you as powerless as you think you are? Because I believe that. Look at me now, (laughs) you know? $200 and yelling at a senior later. (laughs) And that's the thing. I, like, it's just another day for Chloe Brown, but it's meant a whole lot for a bunch of people that I don't know. And that's me risking people knowing like, yeah, I'm a weird, wonky oddball, but like, I love p- the people of Toronto and I'm willing to fight whoever comes up and threatens Toronto because I'm like, you're not my kids, but like, I consider you all my kids, my brothers and sisters, and you know, mom said take care of you while she's out and that's really the attitude that i'm bringing to this where it's like parents have left us home alone it's our job to hold down the fort if you're not about holding down the fort go to your room (laughs) you know and that's the attitude i'm taking and it feels so familiar to so many people because i'm honest about it like i'm your big little sister and i want what's best for you and the more i'm honest about that really strange feeling i feel inside the more people that come out to vote the more progress moves forward but i have to be honest about it so yeah be raw and honest with your friends that like you're struggling with mental health your finances that you're afraid that your parents are sick and you won't be able to house them because do your friends really know you you know what i mean outside of partying with you do your friends really know you are they willing to go with you to your counselor's office to talk about this issue. And that is the measure of friendship that I have now, where it's like, my friends are like, Chloe, I want to knock doors for you. I believe in you. And like, that is one of the purest forms of friendship that I'm experiencing right now. And that's why I stay in Toronto, because it's like strangers are like, What the night John Tory resigned, someone bought me four website domains. Someone had thousands of dollars waiting for me i had no choice about running in this by-election i was called up off the bench so you know i'm on the field playing for team toronto and that's not gonna change <laughs> so yeah just be ready to be called out and to be called up well
0: thank you for that chloe i i did want to mention that when we reached out to book uh, an interview with you Your campaign manager was not just enthusiastic about, yes, of course, sounds amazing, but you know, can we turn this into a public event where people are allowed to come and ask questions like they wanted it to be as accessible as possible. And that was really heartwarming. We don't experience that very often from politicians. They do try to maximize their campaign spots and their time. I get that. But it wasn't framed that way. And I just, that really sat well with me. So kudos to your campaign manager, Salom, because It was just a pleasure, kind of, it spoke to, I think, your campaign. It was a pleasure to work with them and the spirit of what you're intending to do came through in just the most brief interactions I had through an email. And the reaction we got online, to from folks is always mixed, but I think folks are generally excited to learn more about what's driving you. They can go to your website, they can read your policies, they can agree or disagree and nitpick them and, and improve them and or whatnot. But getting to know you is something a little bit different. I think we kind of got there today. Definitely know your motivations. And I got a piece of advice <laughs> from the Twitterverse for you that just came in, um, says Chloe Brown should legally change her name to John Tory just for the election, and we might survive the decade. So you've got fans out there that are desperate for you to win this one, my friend. So thanks for taking the time out of your campaign day and your work day and and uh, chatting with us.
1: Thank you. Um... I was actually really excited when you reached out because this is about the blueprints for disruption. Like, I want you guys to become little shit disturbers too because, yeah, um, I remember this Toronto Star article writer calling me a shit disturber, Reg Cohn, and he said this to me at a meeting, and I was just like, oh, like, you think I'm a shit disturber now. Wait. (laughs) Wait. I promise you. Chaos. Life goals. (laughs) So, yeah that's the thing it's just like i'm motivated by the ton of people who told me that like you shouldn't be here like you're a little too much like you need to wait your turn nope (laughs) i did and now here i am i think (laughs) we need a little too much now
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) i think we're due for too much but thank you yeah but
1: that's thank you
0: (laughs) That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.